Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. I want to invite you, if you're willing, uh, to do something for me. I want to invite you to open up to that Ephesians passage and let, just let the, open up the Bible, let it sit next to you, and return to it about two or three times before this sermon is over. I don't plan on actually preaching from it, but I want to simply just have it sitting there so that at some point you might go, well, I heard what he said. Let's go back to this and just allow those things to kind of cross-pollinate for a little bit. Just something if you're looking for a way to stay intera- more interactive with the sermon this morning. Another way that you're invited to do that is I put on a different stole this morning. You might have seen Charlotte bounce up here and tell me that it's her favorite stole in all the world. Um, and it is. This is, this is so very Charlotte. Um, but nevertheless, put it on this morning because I want it to visually inspire that which I want to talk about this morning. And the title of my sermon, which didn't arrive to me until this morning, which is why it's not in the bulletin, is called A Theology of Imagination. A Theology of Imagination. And that's where I'd like our minds to go today. Now, the second word in that theology might cause a couple of us in our belly buttons to get a little tight. We're like, oh, no, he's not, like, diving deep on, like, super hardcore theology. Well, maybe not super hardcore. We're going to have a little bit of theological talk this morning, and hopefully this celebration of the ascension might unpack for us this most underrated of all Christian holidays. If there was a holiday that I could say, make it right at, Sam, you've got the magic wand and you can make it as significant as Easter and as significant as Christmas, there would be a couple, uh, couple candidates on my list, but Ascension might actually win the day. Because the Ascension asked us a very important question with very important consequences. And so I want to start with this theological question. Good theology usually starts with a good question. And the best questions tend to be very simple ones that get our minds going and get us thinking more deeply about the things of God. And so today I want to ask you a question and invite you to just think about it for a second. I want to ask you right now, where is Jesus' body? Think about that for a second. Where is Jesus? I know the story we just read, okay, which is why I'm asking more specifically, where is Jesus' body? It is not, a histori- it's not historically insignificant that we've never seemed to have been able to find Jesus' body. I th- that matters to me. And so since we've never found it, since it hasn't shown up in a museum anywhere, my question to you again is, where is Jesus' body? Because I would posit to you that nearly every significant point of theology, nearly everything we believe about Jesus and what we're doing as a church and what the church is about and what it means to live as a Christian in the world actually comes from an extended reflection on the simple literal question of where is Jesus' body. Think about this. Think about the story we began with at Christmas. Jesus' body is in a manger. The word becomes flesh. The body of God is now made dust and breath just like ours. You remember us telling these stories. At his baptism, Jesus Jesus goes down into the water. His body is in the water, and as he goes into the water, he blesses and sanctifies that water, that as we follow him through those waters in our own baptism, we might hear the words that he heard, with you, I am well pleased. Jesus' body takes us to a belief. 
On Good Friday, Jesus' body is bent in prayer at Gethsemane. Ultimately, it is crowned with thorns and it is hung on a cross. And we talked about this. Here, Jesus' body receives all of the violence of the world. And in its place returns not violence and not power, but pardon and forgiveness. On Easter, Jesus' body is no longer in the tomb. In the face of that violence that Jesus experiences on Good Friday, the body of Jesus actually is resurrected. There is something old about it and something new about it. And now the body of Jesus lives. It breathes. It eats. It forgives. It restores. So I hope I've convinced you this is a good theological question to ask. Where is Jesus' body? Always ask this question when we're reading the Gospels. And what is his body doing? Because it unlocks these kinds of probing thoughts that uncovers and exposes what it means to live as a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But it is this celebration of why I would make it so important that we actually produce our worst answers to that question. Now, I'm not here to run anybody's theology down. But every once in a while, I'm like, well, let's play that out for a second. Let's see where that takes us. And sometimes our ascension answers to this just kind of go sideways. Because as we ask it today, modern pop theology's best answer to where is Jesus' body on ascension is, well, after resurrection, Jesus kind of lifts off for like this outer spacey kind of reality and is now hanging out with God in heaven until he comes back. We answer it in such a way as if it's like Jesus is on this 2,000-year vacation before he kind of comes back, you know, from, I mean, the, you know, that whole crucifixion thing was really tired. I need, could use a break for a couple thousand years, and I'll be back. We'll, we'll wrap this up later. But that answer has consequences. Because if we end the gospel story, which what ascension does, it is the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next week we jump into Pentecost, which is the story of the Holy Spirit. But if we end the gospel story by saying, well, and then Jesus went off to heaven, which is why he's not here, but someday he's going to come back and bring about this reality, well, then what this does is it kind of leaves a void, does it not? We're kind of free to let the world unfold however we want. All of a sudden, our answer to what do we do now seems very passive and unsatisfying, If Jesus is just waiting around, well then, as a disciple, I guess I'm just supposed to wait around, just kind of not do anything. If Jesus is coming back sometime, well, maybe I'll get, you know, maybe I'll dial into the things of the faith sometime when I get around to it. You can see that this answer of Jesus is just hanging out in heaven is an answer that leaves us directionless, it leaves us hopeless, because who just really wants to disappear into nothingness? Like, we don't take... Maybe we take some comfort in that. I take comfort in the idea that I will be known even as I've fully known in eternity. I still want to be myself, and I still want to know you as yourselves in eternity. And ultimately, it leaves us and our world unaccountable. Jesus isn't doing anything, so why should we care? This is the parable Jesus told of the guys with the talents. There was a bunch of guys just threw it in a hole and said, well, I'll, get, I'll come to it when I come to it. And if we blow this up even a little bit bigger, if Jesus is not doing anything... Well, then governments and the powers of this world are also free to carry on as, if, as they have so that life remains ultimately the same. And it begs the question, well, then what's the point of Jesus if nothing's going to be different? The apostles understood this point, at least. The apostles are finally starting to show eh, a little bit they get it. They don't fully get it, but the apostles at least said back to them, are you now going to set up the kingdom of God? Are you going to do it now? 
Because the apostles at least understood that power abhors a vacuum. And if Jesus fails to exercise that power, someone else will. But is there a better answer than just we're all kind of sitting on our hands waiting for Jesus to come back? Ascension gives us a much better answer. Jesus reassures them that in the ascension, this is not a vacation, this is not a disappearance. Power has not left. The power of the kingdom of God has not left. It's actually here to grow. Jesus' body has not disappeared. It has ascended. Today isn't about the absence of Jesus. Today is the coronation of Jesus. It is not the absence of Jesus' power in the world. It is actually the establishing of it. In the ascension, Jesus' body goes up into heaven and we have proclaimed for 2,000 years in some way, shape, or form, in a very mystical way, we say literally, flesh and blood now occupy heaven. Jesus goes up full body and now sits at the right hand of God. And later the church will reflect and say, what's he doing there? Well, he's interceding for you and he's interceding for me. If Christmas is about God coming to the earth in a person of Jesus, then today is that Jesus takes our humanity and lifts it to the very throne of God. We no longer have a gulf between what it means to be human and what it means to be divine. Humanity sits and looks at God and prays for the world. We are a single whole lifted to the presence of God, and that is a confession that we proclaim on ascension. Well, why does this matter then? Well, first and foremost, if we follow the way of Jesus, then we can take solace that one day we too will be with God. Not as angels strumming a harp. I don't even know how to play a harp. I've got a mandolin and a guitar. I can barely play those. We're going to be with God in our bodies. There's going to be an eternal day where we can, I could give you a hug because COVID's going to be gone. And I could give you a hug and we can stroll and take walks and eat food, and celebrate, and sing, not just in some spiritual idea, but in this stuff that we call our flesh. But more to the point, Jesus is not just waiting for power, he is exercising it. He's the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, right now, right now. And literally, Jesus sits above all things. And this is this beautiful prayer that we read from Paul today, this Ephesians prayer. It's why I want it just kind of sitting there for, to kind of breathe some life into what we talk about here. We read that all about that Jesus is bringing about enlightenment, power, and hope. But they're all predicated. This beautiful picture that Paul writes is all predicated on the fact that God has put, thing, put all things under the feet of God. What does this mean? It means the story is fundamentally concluded. Who is the king? It is Jesus. How do we know? He sits at the right hand of God, and all things are now under his feet. Our lives are under his feet, which doesn't mean he tramples us down, but rather that he rules. All the nations of the earth are under his feet. All of our fears, all of our anxieties, terrorism, politics, violence, all of it is under the feet of our Lord. And because Jesus is completely and fully Lord, there is not now anything that is not subject to Jesus. Everything is in his hands. The kings, read governments of the world, are not free to ignore Jesus and his commands and what he taught so that they can run the world by violent and self-interested pragmatism. Even the kings of the earth are called to submit to the kingdom that Jesus taught. So what does this mean for us, the body of Christ who are here? 
This is where I want you to turn on your imaginations. I mentioned this on Wednesday, and if you've tuned in at any point during the day, you saw, and I am unapologetic about it, an unhinged, burdened, sobbing pastor trying to pray in the morning. But the primary call when we cannot see a reality, because it's great to say Jesus is Lord of all, and you look, all you got to do is pull up any website and go, Jesus is Lord of that? We're all feeling that on this message today. But the primary call of the church, when we believe in a reality that we cannot see, is to imagine it. Let me say it again. The primary call of the church, when we believe in a reality we cannot yet see, is to use our imaginations. Imagination is one of the fundamental keystones of the Christian church, and it always has been. Good theology has always been because we were willing to say, well, what if X? The Israelites in the wilderness said, what would it be like if we were in a promised land? The Israelites who were in the promised land who got kicked out said, well, what does it mean? What would it look like for us to serve God without a land and without a king and without a temple and all that kind of stuff? Good theology has always been imaginative, not to blow it up, but to keep it alive, to keep hope alive. And imagination invites us to, you, to think more clearly on days like today. And today is one of those days we've got a lot of things piled on top of one another, but they actually help us make some clarity about what God might be calling the church to do. So on a day like today where the church stands in the midst of what is and what will be, and says, we honor those who gave their lives for our country. It's reasonable and good and honoring that we should do that. It's also reasonable, good, and honoring to say, well, what would it look like if we had a world where no Memorial Days were necessary? And why can we ask that question in good faith? Why can we ask that question out of yearning? Because right now, as we speak, there are Ukrainian citizens who are dying that will create Memorial Days for the Ukrainians for years and years to come. And we can look at that and say, no more of that. So it's okay for us to say, we honor those who sacrificed. What if we never needed those sacrifices? What if there's a world coming where we don't need them? It could all be different. And we can start to imagine it. Maybe it feels out of reach. That's fine. Well, of course it's out of reach. It ascended with Jesus into heaven. But we can still hope for it. We can live in a world where wars are no more. We can live in a world where safety and abundance are the rule of the day. When we lean into love over fundamentalism. Where we lean into love and acceptance and abundance rather than fear. Which we as a country continue to dive back into. As we pray for those who burden our souls with yet another shooting. That's what we're called to do as the people of God, to imagine a world where that's not necessary anymore because that's the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells us, you will be my witnesses. He says this in Luke and he says it in Acts and we're intended to take these two stories and glue them together. Jesus continues to say, you will be my witnesses, which means you will speak up for the kingdom that is here but not yet visible. Here's the thing. We are not called to create the reality of the kingdom of God on our own. It's not our task. Jesus did not say, here's a mantle. You go exercise power in order to bring about the kingdom of God. No. Jesus will bring in the kingdom. We are only called to witness to it. 
The primary role of the church in this sense then is to be a prophetic witness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by advocating for peace and for mercy and for justice. This is what Paul wrote in that prayer. He says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you might be able to see what other people cannot see because we believe in a Christ who has ascended. We believe in a Jesus who sits at the right hand of God, fully flesh and blood, interceding for us and for the world as we speak. The church is not to function as a nationalist toady to a king, but as a prophetic witness and embodied presence of the king of kings who is over every nation, every economics, every politics. In fact, all we need to do, you can read either one of the Psalms that we've read this morning, or you can read Psalm 2. Right out of the gate, the writer writes, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. We have always spoken to the powers that be and said there's another way that is coming. Thank God. And so by loving one another and with our prophetic voices, we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we point to his ultimate reign, which is already here and is still not yet quite here. And by speaking clearly and faithfully, we can call others to the same kind of life. And when Jesus comes again, and he will, and boy do we need that message more than ever, when Jesus comes again, it will not be with a tan and flip-flops. No, no, I mean no disrespect for those of you who are about to go get a tan and flip-flops, good for you. But Jesus isn't coming back off of vacation. Rather, when he comes back, it will be with the watchful and compassionate eye of the Savior, the marks of the cross still in his hands and side, revealing the truth and the glory of his lordship. And judgment, which we talk about, is simply a revelation of whether we have been faithful to the kingdom that is or the kingdom that is coming. But let us begin by asking, can we imagine it? Can we imagine a different world? Ascension invites us to do just that. So today is a day for celebration. Jesus is Lord. Have there ever been three words more powerful than that? Jesus is Lord. Today is a day for call one another to repentance, to renew our commitment to that kingdom. For we all, at all times, look to temp... Excuse me. For at all times, we should repent because at times we look to temporal powers for a salvation that comes only through the King of Kings. So let us repent and then commit ourselves yet again to serving as witnesses to the kingdom that is coming with the good news that Jesus has come, he has died, he has resurrected, and he is ascended. And one day he will come and finally and fully set it right. 